You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. We are talking about Mormonism today, and especially the two central figures of Christianity and Mormonism, Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. How do they compare to one another? What can we know about them historically? And to do this, I've decided to bring on Hobson. Now, Dr. Tom Hobson holds a degree in social work from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, a Master of Divinity from Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary, and a PhD in Biblical Exegesis from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. His dissertation was on the Mosaic Law penalty cut off from his people. He has written What's on God's Sin List for Today, and Historical Jesus and Historical Joseph Smith. He has also written journal articles, including Aselgia in Mark 7.22, which argues that Jesus did name homosexual behavior as a sin. All his academic work can be found on his website, biblicalethic.org. He was ordained as a Presbyterian pastor in 83, has served churches in Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois, and taught as a chair of biblical studies and languages at Morphland College. He is currently retired and lives in Belleville, Illinois. Hello. Dr. Hobson, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Well, it's good to be here with you, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Mm, let's see. Uh, well, first I must say that uh, I found salvation in 1973 when I was a teenager. Um, shortly after that, I began to, uh, to sense that God might be calling me to ministry. And so, as, as we mentioned, I, I, I got my Master of Divinity, was ordained in the Presbyterian Church, been a pastor for years, but uh, why I ended up writing the, uh, the historical Jesus and the historical Joseph Smith goes back to the fact that I first met the Mormons, um, found out who they really were in 1977 on a youth group trip from St. Louis uh, to Oregon. It was in on that same trip that I met my wife. Uh, there's a story there that we could tell. Um, but uh, So God brought us together, and on that same trip, I, I met the Mormons uh, when our youth group spent the night at a church in Utah. Our, uh, our, uh, the pastor that was hosting us um, gave us a guided tour of Mormonism that just absolutely blew our minds. Uh, but for me, God put a burden on my heart starting that day, uh, 42 years ago, um, that continued till then. And um, not long after I started feeling that burden, I, well, God's calling me to serve a, a, as a pastor in Mormon territory. So I searched uh, for where that place might be, and God never— never did open that door up. 
Um, back a year and a half ago, uh, fall of 2018, uh, my wife and I went out and spent two months helping to start a Christian coffee shop in San Pete County, Utah. And um, I was blogging while I was there, uh, among other things. But when, when I got back, um, they, uh, one of the pastors at the church where I was attending uh, said, Tom, why don't you put these together into a, uh, these blogs together into a book? And I thought, ooh, uh, I, I just couldn't bear the thought of having to find a publisher, which is really hard to do, and going through all that. But I finally figured out maybe God put this burden on my heart 42 years ago um, because he wanted me to put all this together into a book uh, to be used uh, as an evangelistic tool uh, to reach Mormons. So that that kind of gives you an explanation of where I am at the moment. I'm retired from everything you read that I was doing. And so I'm uh, right now the book has become one of the uh, most important things in my life at the moment. You know, when you start talking about going on this grand tour, I can't help but think of uh, someone else I've read. Adam DeMeyer wrote a great book, Almost a Mormon. Not mm. sure if you've read it or not, but he talked about how he first went to Salt Lake City as mm. a teenager, and he got very excited about Mormonism when he mm. first saw it. I think it had something to do with the Mormon girls of a temper, really. That, that, that was mm. the main selling point for him. But as... As his book says, he did uh, get out of that and is now very strong in his Christianity. Mm. But, you know, Mormons, they, they really are a sizable church out there right now, aren't they? Right. They're sizable. And I must say, you know, I've, um, all the effort I put into getting to know them and understand their beliefs and their culture, um, I found them fascinating. And... Mm -hmm. In some ways, I would find them appealing, but yeah. I kept running into evidence that made sure that I did not go that direction. Uh, I could never become one of them, but I can understand when people find them to be attractive or uh, or, or the like. There does seem to be something incredibly fascinating about studying Mormonism, because it, it's just such a strange movement. I mean, I, I can't think of any other word to describe it and the way people mm. believe it so much when there's actually mm. right now so much that we know that contradicts it. It's incredible. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you spend enough time talking to them, uh, you find, well, one of the things I found, I, I finished uh, putting together this book um, the the strongest evidence of why I do not trust Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith, and you find the limitations of evidence because really uh, you cannot prove someone out of what they believe. Um, it really only God can open people's eyes. Uh, to see the truth for what it is. I mean, so you can give them the truth, but then you are powerless to get them to believe it. Mm -hmm. Hey, so let's look into this book here. And your first chapter is why we must know the facts about Jesus and Joseph. Okay, why should we care about any one of these figures today? I mean, for people today, some will say, look, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Joseph Smith mm -hmm. lived in the early 19th century up to the first half of it. Mm -hmm. Why should we care about any of them? Well, we should um, 
we should care about Jesus because either he was God or he wasn't. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. Uh, if he really did rise from the dead, which would tend to validate uh, his claims to be God, then that becomes hugely important. Uh, why is Joseph important? Well, Joseph claimed to be the one way to reach Jesus. Mm -hmm. He has a different understanding of Jesus, but nevertheless, um, you know, and I take his claims seriously because if he's right, mm -hmm. uh, then I, I'm in a considerable amount of trouble. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore, and I find his claims to be uh, more, uh, I take him more seriously than I do uh, Mohammed or various other um, uh, religious leaders. I found it very interesting because I was about to mention Mohammed as a mm -hmm. parallel. Why do you take Joseph Smith more seriously than Mohammed? Um, well, he, uh, Muhammad uh, denies up and down that, Je uh, that Jesus is God in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean that, uh, and plus, uh, I, as I read the, the Quran, I don't find anything in there compelling. On the same, by the same token, as I read the Book of Mormon, I'm not finding it compelling either. Um, but I mean, it's, it's possible that Jesus could have come to America, as stated in the, uh, the Book of Mormon makes this claim, but even if he did, I don't accept the account given in the, uh, in the Book of Mormon. Okay. So, looking at uh, the historical evidence, one thing I found interesting at the start that wasn't covered, and I'm wondering if it will be covered sometime in the distant future for Joseph Smith is a claim that's found on the internet constantly, certainly not among scholars, is the just base claim that Jesus even existed. And mm. I remember talking to my wife last night and thought, yeah, I wonder if maybe a couple hundred years or so from now we'll have some Joseph Smith assists who are saying that mm. there never was a historical Joseph Smith. So I was kind of curious if, it, huh. if you just wanted to bypass that whole debate or what? Well, um, with Jesus, um, I, I felt my, basically my mo, um, I am, uh, my target audience is Mormons and Christians who are considering Mormonism. Um, so among those two groups, uh, the, the, um, uh, the number of them who believe, uh, who believe that G uh, Jesus never existed to start with, uh, be almost zero. Although, um, I, um, I take seriously the statistics showing that a huge number of those who li uh, leave Mormonism end up leaving all, uh, anything resembling Christianity mm -hmm. behind yep. and they become either atheist, agnostic or whatever. Yeah. So that's why I spent the first half of my book, almost, almost half of it, trying to build up reasons to trust in and believe in Jesus, first of all, um, because if you convince them that Joseph is false, you run the risk of, of convincing them that the whole, everything that they were taught was wrong. Now, going back to your question about will, it, will you ever uh, uh, have a movement believing that, jo uh, that Joseph never existed, I can't see it. I, I just can't get my mind around that. You, I remember you mentioned it a while ago. Um, uh, and I, uh, I don't know how, uh, how they would ever get there. <laughs> yeah, I, my, my pastor of church is having me in 
went out to do some uh, writing on apologetics dealing with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Islam. And one of the things I state in my own work on this is when I debate with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, especially since they claim they believe in the Bible as well, I do everything I can to build up the Bible first. Mm. Because yes. if all you do is you go and you just tear down the Watchtower or Joe Smith, you'll just create an atheist or an agnostic mm. who have a chip on their shoulder against all religions. So I say, go in there and eventually you do have to tear down Joseph Smith some, but build up the Bible first. Give them a foundation they can sit on. Definitely. And I was, um, as far as, you know, thinking back about uh, Jesus, uh, whether he existed, I felt fairly safe that if even, uh, even a skeptic uh, like Bart Ehrman um, will defend up and down uh, the fact that Jesus existed, I mean, well, that, um, I'm, I'm on pretty safe ground here. <laughs> yeah, it's only on the Internet, really, that whole debate is going on. It's not really much of a debate anyway. Yeah. And uh, I think with all this, with Mormons, and when you talk to a Mormon and you're trying to get them to leave, Christ to leave Mormonism, become a Christian, you're not just asking them to change their beliefs. You're pretty much asking them to change their whole life and culture, aren't you? Yes, it's... Um uh, well, leaving Mormonism is like leaving Islam. I really, uh, I seriously, uh, I mean that. Yeah. Uh, the the only people going to the Mormon outer darkness, you know, the equivalent of hell, are murderers and ex-Mormons. Mm -hmm. So you can see why it would be a lot easier for someone to just uh, go off to their own po uh, private beliefs, maybe doubt um, what they've been taught. Uh, maybe even not believe what they've been taught, but don't leave, don't leave Mormonism, uh, because there is a whole cultural um, attachment that goes to it. They uh, about the one group. Uh, if people have a, uh, if Mormons who uh, who are Mormon in name only, the the church lets them stay. About the one time where I see that they get act that they'll actively kick people out is for publicly. Um, questioning uh, their top leaders. And uh, I think you suspect, or you might explicitly say, I don't remember exactly, but there are Mormons in the Mormon church who know that Mormonism is false, but they, they can't come forward. Right. Um, that um, They are out there, and what we found when we went, uh, when we went to help start the Christian coffee shop, I know, uh, San Pete County, Utah, uh, is about 93% Mormon. Uh, about 79% of the 93 uh, are practicing what they call Temple Mormons, and yet we had a huge uh, market for coffee and tea. That was, that's uh, amazing. Which are, yeah, you can't get into a Mormon temple if you are not um, uh, avoiding coffee and tea. Mm -hmm. So really, I, I would question the statistic of how many are faithful Mormons, um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it seemed like maybe half the county uh, was was our market. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, people. Um, well, a lot of folks that I would like to uh, hope to be able to reach out to. Uh, that uh, 
you know, the ones that I debate on the net are true believing Mormons. Uh, they, uh, so um, you can plant seeds of doubt with them, but with the folks who are already starting to question or uh, reassess their faith, these are the folks I'd like to be able to speak to. And the internet really hasn't been friendly to groups like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, has it? Mm, well, boy, uh, you, uh, I participate in a couple of, well, yeah, it's true that the, uh, uh, the, the Internet has made it much easier for groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses to, uh, to get access to information that questions or disproves their, their beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as online, you know, the debate, uh, it's about 50-50 between true-believing Mormons and true-believing Christians. Okay, let's start going through, you know, about bedrock in the life of Jesus. And something I did like about this is... You didn't come out and just say, well, the Bible says it, therefore it's true. And I, mm -hmm. I admire that approach, but I want to know why did you take that approach? Well, it's kind of like I had already started out there. I, a lot of the material in Chapter 2 originated, well, 2, 3, and 4 originated in um, uh, Sunday school classes that I have been teaching on the historical Jesus and on the canon, the, the early church and the like. And I, uh, as I was, uh, I, I used the criteria, you know, the, 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 uh, the class that I taught several times was called uh, the, uh, Historical Jesus. And we used the criteria of authenticity uh, that I laid down in chapters one and two. Um, and I, as I was teaching, I thought, why uh, uh, wouldn't it be great if someone did this, for, uh, applied the same method to the life of Joseph Smith? Dangerous question and, to ask, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and it's, it's one of those things where, uh, well, with Jesus, there's one thing, because I believe, uh, there's so, uh, so many false um, pictures of Jesus out there. People have their own private Jesus that makes them feel good, lets them do whatever they want. Uh, I, no, uh, we need to know the historical Jesus, and here's how how we can know without uh, without even necessarily believing the Bible, yeah. uh, because the Bible still gives us evidence that a historian uh, can utilize and come up with positive conclusions. Mm -hmm. But then with Mormonism, uh, what I wanted to do was that often Mormons will turn us off because uh, they don't trust our sources. They want to, us to go to sources they can trust. They, oh, well, great. Let's go directly to Joseph in his own words. Let's go directly to, uh, to those who knew him best, uh, friendly witnesses. And uh, as we examine the evidence there, then we, will, uh, we, see, we see enough problems that we don't have to rely on the words, uh, on the you know, rumors told by his arch enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, his own words and those closest to him uh, give us enough to examine to say, okay, this is the historical Joseph. What do we do with him? Yeah, I remember going to the library and ordering a couple of books. But from those sources on Mormonism, after I read your book, unfortunately, I haven't got a hold of him because just after I put in my request for him, here comes this stupid virus through the area and the library gets shut down. So I'm still waiting mm. on that end. On the other hand, looking at the Christian scholarship on Jesus, I recognize several names. And I did like that you have scholars in there, but you didn't have too many to overwhelm everyone at the same mm. time because this is supposed to be a book 
for that the average layman can pick up and read, right? I'm big, uh, lost the last few words. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is supposed to be a book. I mean, you've got scholars in there, but it's not overwhelming. And I think it, this is because it's supposed to be a book that the average layman can read. Your Sunday school class can go through it together. Right, right, uh, and as it is, I'm. Uh, I, I personally, I am. I'm not a, such a scholar like Craig Keener or the like uh, to be able to name many more scholars than what I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's go through and look at the historical bedrock of Jesus. Okay, this is stuff that pretty much no matter what side you come down on, this is what scholars agree to about Jesus. So, what is it? No. Yeah. Well, I give a couple examples to start with. I give the example, of course, on the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And there you, uh, a lot of what's written there is kind of like, why, uh, why would this, uh, why would the early church have made these connections? Why would they have Jesus being baptized? Uh, doesn't that imply that he's a sinner? Uh, we would say no, but, you know, uh, uh, so why did they tell us? Because it, it's true, because it's historical bedrock. Mm -hmm. Um, then uh, the the story uh, the account of Jesus uh, uh, cleansing the temple um, was, is one of those ones. Even even the Jesus seminar, as skeptical yeah. as they were, yeah. uh, ended up conceding that this really and truly happened. Uh, and again, so we look at why uh, why we can be confident that uh, hey, you don't have to believe the Bible to believe this really happened. Uh, and again, with the Lord's Supper, it's been questioned again by the Jesus Seminar, and yet uh, you, there's just no better explanation for your average, uh, for, I mean, uh, if a historical scholar denies that this really happened, then uh, how do they believe that anything from ancient history mm. uh, truly took place? So we talk about that. Uh, we do uh, some of those examples. Then we talk about his teachings. Um, and you know some of uh, some of the bedrock historical Jesus teaching. There, there's some parts I wouldn't have put in there. I wouldn't have put in unlimited forgiveness. I, um, I wouldn't have put in uh, where Jesus uh, tells us not to uh, not to uh, to call people uh, fools and stupid and the like. You know, I, I would have put that in my Jesus. But again, we are controlled by the historical Jesus. And the historical Jesus also, I put in a word for the fact that he uh, was not a uh, sexually permissive, uh, that he uh, he taught, uh, he reaffirmed the Torah's teaching, the two, meaning a man and a woman shall become one flesh, uh, that this is the central biblical teaching. This is undeniably Jesus. Uh, and even divorce, regardless of whether you view it as being something that can, uh, can be um, forgiven and start over again or not, uh, it's undeniable that Jesus um, taught something really tough on this subject mm -hmm. because it went against everybody's grain, and even the early church was trying to wiggle out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's undeniable that he taught it. We simply have to figure out how do we uh, how do we apply his teachings to the pastoral situations in which we live. But and then I also mentioned uh, in connection with my article about where where Jesus uh, I believe does name homosexual behavior as a sin in uh, Mark seven twenty two um, that. 
the, the evidence on that is, a, is, a, is not quite as strong as uh, the other parts of Jesus' teaching. But if, if you tried to argue that Jesus was okay with homosexual behavior, the evidence is absolutely zero. Some, some people might be surprised. I saw it. She mentioned it's rare. Would be miracles included. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And even if you look at atheistic and agnostic scholars of the New Testament, of course we're not going to say that Jesus did miracles, but they will agree that Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker and exorcist. Right. Yes. And that, uh, and I like, you know, uh, if you guess by reading my book, um, John Meyer is my favorite liberal mm -hmm. Catholic. Uh, and even though he's uh, he's uh, gets skeptical on the issue like how many uh, of the parables can truly be traced to Jesus. Uh, here on miracles, man, he comes down absolutely uh, miracle. Uh, if you deny the miracle tradition, uh, you got, you're going to have to throw out everything Jesus ever said or did. And so that's why I leaned on him on that example. That uh, And, you know, like you say, others like Marcus Borg and the like say, hey, you can't get around that tradition. You can't uh, you can't throw it out. Uh, I find amazing. I've heard a Gary Habermas say something along the lines of that uh, things that even liberal scholars are granting today wouldn't have mm -hmm. been granted 50 years ago. That the trajectory is actually becoming more conservative on his work with Jesus. Oh, that's good to hear. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> and then, of course, it's not the same as historical bedrock, but you have something on the resurrection of Jesus because naturally, atheistic and agnostic New Testament scholars aren't going to agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but they will agree to several facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Right. That's true. Um, uh, yeah, that uh, in chapter 4 there, uh, virgin birth, which I know you are partial to. Oh, I affirm the uh, virgin birth. <laughs> yes, and I, uh, I've the the three highest claims about Jesus: his virgin birth, his claims to be God, and his resurrection. Mm -hmm. These are all bedrock, uh, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned, as well. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, and in this season, being the day before Easter, uh, yeah, uh, it's a thrilling story to retell ourselves again and again. I can tell you did some checking in on me before the show did, since you know about the virgin birth thing, which I did with him. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't avoid it. <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun here. You have to do any checking, yeah. yeah. You know, that I, I was even in a chat this morning on Braxton Hunter's Trinity Radio thing, with someone mocking the appearance traditions of Jesus. And, okay, here's E.P. Sanders, here's Gerd Ludemann, here's Bart Ehrman, here's quotes from all three of them from their books, page numbers, none of them say they're Christians. I mean, E.P. Sanders might have said he was, but he didn't believe in miracles, so I can think. All of them affirm the appearance tradition, every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, mm -hmm. so, yeah, the, all, all they can do there is try to find some way to explain away the appearances. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, man, though. On these lines, you also have that there are some things we really don't know about the life of Jesus. That we've got some uncertainties there. Well, there are places where the, uh, well, uh, in chapter 3, mm -hmm. first half is some pieces where I won't say that we don't know, but yeah. what we, uh, but the items that we have, 
um, are not uh, don't have as much bedrock underneath them right. as others. Um, you know, my examples being like, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Uh, the uh, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and then the the one about uh, whether Jesus advised his his followers to make sure they have a few swords on hand to protect themselves. Uh, those are all on um, the evidence is not as strong. But again, let me make it real clear. I believe everything that the Gospels tell us about Jesus. Right. There are some places where I have to rely on faith more than in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first half of, the, of that chapter, we talk about the places where I've got to take a little more faith because I have a little less evidence. But then the, the second half of the chapter is examining all these uh, reported sayings of Jesus outside of the New Testament. The this Agrifa. becomes important to Mormons because they want to uh, they want to know what do you do about things that were left out, mm -hmm. and we did, we have that discussion. And something we should discuss also before moving on to Joseph Smith. You have some mm -hmm. talk about textual criticism of the Bible, mm -hmm. and this is important mm -hmm. because Mormons talk about how the Bible has been changed and things have been taken out, and that you have to believe the Bible insofar as it's properly interpreted, which I kind of think, who wants to believe a Bible when it's not properly interpreted? Well, but, translated correctly is the words they use. Okay. Uh, who would want to believe it if it's not translated correctly? <laughs> well, uh, but they, they are saying implicitly mm -hmm. that there are parts that are not. Uh, and they while they say translated, it's both an issue of translation, but mm -hmm. more importantly, there's the famous line in the Book of Mormon that plain and precious parts were taken out. Mm -hmm. And now that's when I wish I could, uh, if I had Bart Ehrman with me, I would. the one question I would ask him is, um, do you think that, that, uh, that pieces could have been taken out of the Bible on the scale that the Book of Mormon or the, uh, is claiming without, uh, without there being evidence left behind for us to tell, oh, wait a minute, something got taken out here, and particularly here's what, uh, here's what it was. I, I, I think he would doubt it, uh, because as I say in the book, uh, Marcion in 140 AD tried to do such a chop job on the Bible and cut out everything Jewish. He failed. There, uh, there were too many copies out there that, that had the correct version in it. And I think the same is true. The claim, you know, Mormons will only go to the translated correctly argument when the Bible isn't helping them out, they'll say, well, that uh, that's something uh, like the Melchizedek priesthood. They'll say, well, there was all this that the Bible would have told us about the Melchizedek priesthood, um, but somebody checked out. Uh, show me the evidence. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here. And I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on uh, many occasions. And over the years, I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions. And I highly recommend his program. I have, have a few quotes before from Barterman. Apparently somehow we got cut out of my database I've got right here. But it Bart Ehrman in his popular does seem to be very skeptical about how well things have been handed down, but in his academic writings 
He's pretty darn clear that we can recreate the New Testament, not with 100% accuracy, but with enough accuracy. Mm. So, right. and the only parts that we really hold in question are the parts everyone knows about the long ending of Mark, the pericope adultery, the Johannine right. comma, things like that. Right. So he, uh, yeah, he ha, uh, he is quoted as saying that there, uh, what we've been saying all along before he became a big scholar, that no one, um, there, there's no, uh, no important teaching of the New Testament mm -hmm. that uh, that's left hanging there uh, by uh, something that uh, by any textual variations. Mm -hmm. So let's move on then to Joseph Smith, who it's no doubt the most controversial, but. Two figures for us today as Christians. Yeah. Because I mean, we <clears throat> we're all pretty much agreed on Jesus. It's Joseph Smith that we well, okay, what was going on in the film? What were your main sources been for Joseph Smith? Hmm. Well, I, uh, with Joseph Smith, you start with uh, what the Mormons call their standard works, aside from the Bible, you know, uh, the other three scriptures of theirs, the Book of Mormon. Uh, the book called The Doctrine and Covenants and The the Pearl of Great Price, um, all of which he has enough connection to that these uh, these writings reveal um, his beliefs. And, you know, sometimes they can be a, a well, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're a source. And then um, we have his diaries and the book. Uh, the history of the church that was published after his death in his name, uh, it was compiled by others uh, within, the, within the Mormon church, uh, but basically a lot of it is based on his, uh, uh, his diaries and other writings. Then you come to, uh, to sources, uh, friendly sources, uh, people who are uh, be, uh, followers of his and family members and the like. There are journal articles, um, there are journals that they kept, you know, diaries. There are, uh, there are sermons given uh, in a 26-volume uh, book from the late 1800s called The Journal of Discourses. Uh, it contains Joseph's most famous sermon, uh, where he came up with the idea of eternal progression, uh, which we can talk about later, uh, but and uh, it contains a lot of sermons from Brigham Young and others that become uh, handy source materials as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I was kind of surprised you mentioned scriptures that you didn't say anything about the Book of Abraham. Well, which is part of the Pearl of Great Price. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I, I've read them all about, thought they were okay. kind of separate, so that's, that's well, my bad there. Well, and book of, the Book of Abraham is very important as far as I'm concerned. The Book of Abraham and the issue of how Joseph practiced his polygamy are the two biggest um, proofs for me that Joseph cannot be trusted as a prophet. Yeah, I, I consider if I was going to give one piece of evidence to Mormons to show them Mormonism was false, I'd really go for the Book of Abraham immediately. Mm. It, mm. It's, I mean, even Mormon scholars, I understand, who are, are Egyptologists have to say, yeah, Joseph Smith got this one wrong. 
Well, they say that he got it wrong. Uh, there's, uh, the, this is not a translation. But then the whole rest of their defense of the book is to say, well, uh, uh, they, read, they end up redefining the word translation mm -hmm. and say it doesn't have to be what you and I would call a translation, that it's uh, simply, uh, and they often can't can't even describe what the connection is, but then they basically go back to and say, but but just look at what it says. Uh, uh, isn't this wonderful revelation? And could there, you know, and then they try to uh, try to prove, uh, make connections with uh, with the ancient Near East in the book of Abraham and the like, uh, but totally ignoring the fact Joseph called it several times a translation. There is no doubt exactly what Egyptian text was being translated. It's not like he was translated some uh, some part that got lost. Um, it, it, uh, all this came back in 1967 when the the actual texts were rediscovered after they'd been gone missing for about a hundred years. Uh, but that's when yeah, I, you and I obviously are seeing it through our own um, perspective. Uh, but I would say most people would accept our perspective there, that this is, this is proof that Joseph did not know uh, that his claim was false on the book of Abraham, which then brings into question his claims to have translated a book we have no text for, the Book of Mormon, and also, you know, his claims to have retranslated the Bible, because when they, uh, he makes the claim in his Book of Mormon that plain and precious things were taken out, well, he shows you what he thinks was taken out. He will retranslate, uh, he'll take the, the verse, God is spirit, and will retranslate it um, to where it will allow uh, for a God of flesh and bone rather than a God who is spirit. Uh, he... Uh, in um, Genesis 50, he adds about 800 words to his text predicting his coming, the coming mm -hmm. of another prophet named Joseph. Uh, again, he can make this claim, but there is absolutely no textual evidence that we have anywhere, uh, any uh, uh, either the the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or um, the uh, the Masoretic text uh, from 900 A.D. and later. Uh, absolutely no evidence uh, for this uh, material that he adds in. Now, what can we know about Joseph Smith from history? If you locked a bunch of Mormon scholars and Christian scholars and everyone else in the room and said, okay, what can we agree to about Joseph Smith? Just come out with a firm statement. What kind of things would we find on that statement? Well, um, <clears throat> we would have to... Uh, we would have to agree. I mean, and I'm, I'm going to concentrate on the items that, that I find problematic rather than, mm. you know, there's a whole lot we know about Joseph. Yeah. Um, but the ones that are, the items that I find problematic are his doctrine of God, which changed dramatically through the, uh, mm. through the, his short time of ministry. We can come back and talk about that. Mm. So there's the doctrine of God, uh, his, uh, his claims to have translated uh, the Book of Mormon, the Bible, and the Book of Abraham, um, and his—the uh, uh, the new and everlasting covenant uh, approach that he gives to marriage, uh, where he— uh, 
where he cl uh, claims that God has now authorized and in fact commanded the righteous to practice uh, taking more than one wife. Uh, the, uh, the only uh, things that, uh, that he, uh, the, the two requirements that his God throws into the revelation are that, uh, that any uh, secondary or subsequent wife you take must have the permission of the first wife. Plus, uh, you must not take any woman who is already presently married to someone else. Joseph then undeniably t uh, breaks both of those commandments. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, we can talk about that, but that, that's uh, evidence that would cause even the most faithful Temple Mormon to wonder, what do I do with this? Um, there's plenty more we can say about um, the historic. Well, you know, uh, one, uh, there is very, various um, items in his life that I examine uh, like say the, uh, you know, he makes uh, the com uh, he makes the claim that uh, that no one ever kept the church together uh, like he did. The followers of Jesus ran away, but his followers never ran away from him. Well, he himself admits uh, a, that in uh, in Ohio. Um, the, so many people left the church at this at that time that he only had. Um, two leading followers who stayed with him, Heber Kimball and Brigham Young. And Heber Kim Kimball, uh, you know, a friendly witness, says, yes, at this time, there was uh, hardly anyone on earth believed that Joseph, uh, down to only two people that believed that Joseph was a prophet of God. So why would he make those claims later on? Well, you look at um, when he's making them and the like, and you can see, okay, um, he uh, he knows that uh, the time is getting short for him, that uh, that his enemies are on the rise, and and so he's defensive, and he makes a statement like that he, uh, that that he's the only one ever kept the church together. Uh, it's undeniable that he said it because it's right there in his history of the church. It was recorded in his diaries uh, that he said so. So you know that comes that comes in handy to um, consider something like this or the questions about whether whether Joseph actually kept his uh, commands for wisdom to avoid alcohol, uh, coffee, tea, and tobacco, and you find statements uh, he himself. Uh, after this command was given, um, he uh, he describes himself taking wine on various occasions. Uh, on one occasion, he has a uh, in his diary he he tells about being uh, some some um, traveling Mormons were brought to him and accused of. Uh, of having uh, been getting drunk on whiskey. He talks to them and uh, he says that he decided that they had done nothing wrong and gave them a couple do dollars to replenish the bottle. Now that was in his diary. It did not get repeated in the history of the church. But again, this is something, uh, again, it came from his mouth. Um, you see the criterion of, um, of embarrassment um, that we see in the Gospels, why would Joseph have reported this unless it was true? Why would he want to tell a lie about himself that does not make him look good? Okay, let's talk some about Joseph. First, we mentioned was his evolving view on God. Now, this yes. one can be interesting because, honestly, there are some statements in the Book of Mormon 
we would love it if they were in the New Testament because they're so Trinitarian. Yes, hyper-Trinitarian is what I call them, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, yeah, he starts out more Trinitarian than the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, but then he goes uh, around the mid-1800s, around the mid-1830s, he, uh, he starts preaching what I call bi-theism, that the only two uh, in the Trinity, uh, there's a, a two-man Trinity, the Father and the Son, and I said two-man Trinity because at this time he also believes these two deities have bodies of flesh and bone. They are mm. distinct, different deities, so he's already abandoned his Trinitarianism from the Book of Mormon, but then he goes from bi-theism in the last few months of his life, he preaches the famous King, so King Follett sermon yeah. at the funeral of, of a guy by the name of King Follett. Uh, this is like uh, less than two months before he murdered, and he, uh, he states very clearly to his audience that God was once a man and was exalted to become God and that they should plan on becoming gods themselves the way that God once did. He also says a lot else in that uh, in that sermon uh, that basically, you know, there were, uh, God had ancestors. You go back to the beginning. We are as co-eternal. We are co-eternal with God, and you go back as far as you can, and all there is is intelligence. And uh, the, he did not. Uh, um, yeah, that, uh, so he's come a long way in 1844 from where he started around uh, writing the Book of Mormon around 1828 or so. He's, he, he's, and so which one of these is the true God? Uh, which one, uh, if you say Joseph is a prophet, a prophet of which God? The God you, he ended up with or the God you started out with? Yeah, and... Going back to the bi-theism, I think that would likely connect with the whole first vision. Yes. Thing. Even that is weird, because I think Rob Bowman has said there's like nine different accounts of a first vision. Mm. Yes, the, and I, I didn't give a whole lot of space to that because I really, uh, uh, but I, I myself found at least four or five different versions that I considered to be major. And, you know, and it's interesting, a lot of Mormons um, are aware of the different versions and they have their own ways of trying to reconcile them the way we try to reconcile various um, variant accounts uh, in the Bible and the like. Um, maybe it's my own bias, but it seems like there's a huge difference between, what, uh, you know, if you claim that, that there was a, uh, that there was a, um, revival going on in 1820, but there's no historical evidence for one, whereas there was in 1823, which coincide, coincides with one of Joseph's versions of the story. But more importantly to me is that uh, at first, you're un uh, first it appears to be an angel, then we're told that it's Jesus, then only in 1838 do we get the version that it's the father and the son, both of whom have bodies of flesh and bone. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, yeah, um, it, because to me, it's uh, everything doesn't stand or fall there. 
Uh, I didn't put uh, devote much space to it. But, you know, some Mormons themselves would disagree. Like um, one of the uh, one of the latest Mormon apostles, Gordon Hingley, um, said it several times. If uh, if the first vision story is not true, then uh, we're preaching a huge falsehood. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, uh, I would agree. I actually find it amusing when I talk with my fellow Christians that I say, you know, you would have an interesting look at an account of the writing of the Book of Mormon as well, connected with all this. It's quite amusing, but when South Park did that episode of the whole Book of mm. Mormon song, they got a whole lot of it right. Hmm. Okay. Um, I have not seen it. Uh, the, so uh, that would be interesting. Are we talking about the Book of Mormon and mm -hmm. the whole story of of uh, Lehi and his family yeah. coming to America? How, how it can be written, things like that. Right. right. And to me, uh, as as I mentioned, yeah, I, uh, I could not put my, uh, again, he, uh, I don't see room in Joseph's claims to be able to say that the Book of Mormon is a piece of fiction and is still the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Now, I can I understand that fiction can be used uh, to proclaim um, truth, uh, like uh, you know the the novel 1984 did not really happen, and yet we see it coming true all around us. Or so, the parables uh, of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh man, I ran into someone on a Mormon website that. Uh, uh, was insisting that Jesus's parables had to be true, or else he was a liar. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't go to that extreme. Yeah. But it is, it is important that Jesus really did write these parables, and that they were not put in his mouth by someone else. Yeah, that is important. Yeah. So, well, but we, I have. We, yeah. we could go over a parable found in Judges nine, as well, given mm -hmm. people of Bimelech, because I seriously doubt that. Plants of the field went out and talked to other plants, asking them to be their king. Right, right. Well, I don't know what that guy would have done with that, but uh, but yeah, I have written a three-part uh, series, uh, and I'm I link to it on my website, uh, Biblical Ethic. Uh, I where uh, it's called Historicity. Does it matter? Does it matter whether anything in the Bible really or truly happened, or could it just be inspiring fiction? And I. I make yeah. the, the case the vast majority of the time that model does not work for the Bible. And I think that's true for the Book of Mormon as well. Yeah. Now, as uh, someone who studied philosophy, my philosophy is very much Thomistic in my approach. Mm. I love Thomas Aquinas. So when I mm. see Joseph Smith's idea of God, I find it entirely incoherent philosophically. Mm. I don't. Uh, uh, I. I don't. I haven't read enough Thomas Aquinas to know, but I. Uh, I, I can imagine as systematic as Thomas was, he. Uh, yeah, he would have found huge problems with. Uh, with especially if you try to put it all from 1828 to 1844 together and make it coherent. Oh, it, it wouldn't work. Uh, I find it odd when I try to describe what position I put Mormonism. Because some people think it's like Hinduism, very polytheistic. But at the same time, it seems to me also incredibly materialistic. That everything still mm, has yeah. matter to some extent. And I remember a pastor in Utah once telling me, Joseph Smith was postmodern before postmodernism was a thing. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I keep wondering where where does Mormonism fit? Is it polytheism or is it materialism? What is it? Well, it is polytheistic and materialistic at the same time, yeah. uh, and yet it has strains of Christianity mixed in. In some ways, it's uh, it's American uh, Islam, except in some ways it's the opposite of Islam. Um, so, but yeah, he, uh, it, it is as Christian as Hinduism, other than uh, if you took and mixed some Christianity into Hinduism and the like. But even Hindu, you know, Hindu, like you say, Hinduism denies or, or denigrates the uh, the material world, whereas uh, a material God is absolutely where it's at. Um, anyone uh, anyone who doesn't have a body is a loser, except the Holy Ghost, which they he they kind of bracket him out. And but otherwise, Satan. Uh, Satan is punished for being a bad guy in the beginning by uh, denying him a body. Yeah. Let's talk some men about uh, marriage in Joseph Smith, of course. Uh, I'm thinking Jay Warner Wallace, who's been on our show a few times before, said that people do something wrong, they do it for one of three reasons. Money, sex, or power. And mm -hmm. for Joseph Smith, all of those are present. I was in a discussion with some people this morning on Facebook and Fred, and one thing we discussed was people who deconvert from Christianity, and a lot of times they come, they start asking questions. If they're guys, you're fine, there's usually a girl at the center of it. Like Don mm. Johnson has in his book, How I Talked to a Skeptic, a story about someone in a youth group kept asking, I think either the minister or the youth minister, always probing questions about Christianity. And it was being regular and constant, and the guy could tell there was something else going on with all these questions. At one point, after he got a question, he just turned to his guy and said, How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? And that <laughs> was the issue entirely. Mm -hmm. And it looks like Joseph Smith, I mean, the Mormon church, I think, tried to deny this for quite a while, didn't they? But mm -hmm. now, pretty much everyone agrees he was a polygamist. Right. Well, um, and just... Um Joseph starts out, you know, in the in the Book of Mormon's um, sexual ethic is more specific than the Bible, uh, because the Bible, you know, although it uh, has the central biblical teaching is the uh, the two man and woman uh, shall become one flesh, not the three or the four. Um, the Bible never says polygamy is a sin. It seems to tolerate it, like you know, like Jesus says that uh, that. Uh, in the Old Testament, God tolerated divorce, but it was not his wish or his will. Uh, I think the same could be said for polygamy. Uh, but uh, the Book of Mormon makes it very clear that, uh, that polygamy is a, an abominable uh, thing. But then Joseph has a revelation, and he appears to have been acting on his desires or uh, uh, acting on his beliefs before he revealed them. Uh, in 18... 43, I believe it was, uh, 42 or 43, where he issues the new revelation, where he pulls the rug out from under the uh, the uh, the biblical ethic in the Book of Mormon and says uh, plural marriage uh, is something uh, that's not only a good thing, but if you deny it, you're in danger of hell. So, um, yeah, uh, so... That uh, it was being denied 
up uh, through and pa uh, past uh, Joseph's death. Uh, but then finally, uh, especially, you know, once they, uh, once the Mormons uh, moved uh, to Utah, they could openly practice it in life. And they, it became something that, uh, where, uh, where uh, Brigham Young said, the only men who become gods are those who enter into polygamy. And finally, um, be, uh, because of government uh, persecution, uh, the, the church ended up uh, banning it. And yet, um, the, the question was, theologically, is it still, you know, uh, where is God in all? Will, will, it be, uh, will they be allowed to practice it again? Uh, and where is God in all this? Well, it turns out that God himself and Jesus were polygamists. Now, the, uh, whether Jesus was a polygamist is denied by today's Mormon church, and yet um, several uh, several apostles plus Brigham Young, their prophet, all affirm that Jesus Jesus was a polygamist. So, if you can't trust their word, then what good are the apostles and prophets that they fault us for not having? You do wonder. I I, I think polygamy could be coming back soon because now since the government has made the major blunder of redefining marriage to include homosexuals, and now the Mormon church is going, okay, let's revisit this polygamy thing. And I think if you're going to do what the Supreme Court did with redefining marriage, you don't have any way to argue against polygamy at that point. Right. Well, uh, you may not have uh, heard this headline because all of the virus and everything going on, but uh, uh, the Utah legislature has uh, unanimously decriminalized. Yep. Uh, you know what decriminalizing means? Yep. You know, you get a parking ticket or the like. So, uh, so they fell just short of making it openly legal. But this uh, puts the Mormon Church in an interesting position. Uh, but even still, uh, Mor uh, Mormon men whose wives pass away uh, have the option uh, of not only remarrying, but then to be sealed to both the wife, that uh, their first wife, and to the new wife, uh, and take them both with them to the Mormon heaven. Uh, so um, that uh, that shows that they really haven't uh, abandoned the idea. But uh, Mormons at the moment uh, they, uh, are uh, dislike polygamy more than they ever did uh, from since the time when Joseph gave the new revelation. Because right now I, there was a, a a poll done recently among faithful Mormons who. Uh, who opposed polygamy more than they even did divorce. That was a kind of a surprise to me. I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Dr. Tom Hobson on talking about his book, The Historical Jesus and the Historical Joseph Smith. Now, if you're here next week, every April, we always do something for Autism Awareness Month, seeing as my wife and I are both on the spectrum. We've got an interesting guest on Matthew Schneider is going to be my guest next week. He is an autistic Catholic priest. So we will discuss what life is like for him as a priest who is on the spectrum. 
But for now, let's get back to Dr. Tom Hobson talking about historical Jesus and historical Joseph Smith. And I, I'm suspecting that a lot of the people that are really against polygamy in the Mormon church, just a hunch, majority are probably women. I don't know. I, I have a pen pal who is a, very, a true believing Mormon ma uh, man, and he... Uh, uh, he he thinks the idea is hideous himself. Uh, he believes that uh, uh, that Joseph was being. He honestly believes that God commanded him to take other wives and even to take married men's uh, wives uh, as a test, uh, akin to you know, when God uh, commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. Uh, you know, big difference there is that God uh, pulled the plug on that one mm -hmm. and 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 stopped him. Whereas, uh, but this this fellow believes that God commanded him to do something that was that was just hideous to core, and uh, Joseph went ahead and did so anyway. Now, you and I, from where we sit, would see the whole picture differently. But he so so I would say both men and women, um, uh, uh, Mormon men and women, uh, have gotten. I guess they love their spouses enough that they they really can't uh, handle the idea of sharing them. Yeah. And more power to them on that. And I understand even in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's pretty much this revelation given to Emma Smith saying, hey, Joseph's going to have a lot of wives. you got to get in line. Right. Uh, she was told that she would be destroyed if she did not accept this revelation and what went with it. Within one year, it was Joseph who was destroyed, mm. not her. And it's my understanding that she and one of Joseph's sons, I think, started the Reform Latter-day Saint Church after he died, and one of the first things she did was she got rid of polygamy. Right, right. Um, yeah, and denies that it, uh, that it ever happened. Mm -hmm. is, uh, and I confess that I have not dug deep enough into those who defend the reorganized church's uh, position, which is that Joseph did not, mm -hmm. either did not practice this or that, that he did, and then repented, and uh, before he could, uh, before he could make his repentance public and uh, and do away with it, he was killed. Uh, that's their claim. As a historian, you know, partial historian I am. Uh, I I don't accept that on historical grounds. In this case, I believe that the the Salt Lake City Mormons are correct as. Okay. Uh, um, you you're breaking out a little bit. We're spiritual and not secular. Yeah. You broke out a little mm -hmm. bit. You believe the Salt Lake City Mormons oh, are correct about what? Oh, oh say thank you. That they uh, that that Joseph really did polygamy. Although they want to claim that a lot of these relationships were spiritual and not sexual, particularly the uh, the uh, the marriages to married men. You mean women? I don't buy what they're saying. You mean marriages to married women, right? No, nope, I mean, he, yeah, well, to women who are, yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I, I know I, Joseph I, Smith I did a lot of things. I didn't want to give him pressure. He was also having homosexual relationships, too. <laughs> Well, I dug into the uh, into the claims on that, and I find them totally unbelievable. Um, so I, you know, but I, I looked into them, and you know, all these. Uh, there's a lot of there's bits and bits of smoke there, but no fire. <laughs> now, sometimes Joseph Smith 
would marry girls, I think, who were underage as well, and girls mm. who were already married to someone else, and even uh, women who were close relatives of one another, wouldn't he? There's uh, one particular, uh, I think at least one, possibly two, where there was um, a, uh, uh, a woman and her daughter, both of whom were married to men at the time. Mm-hmm. And he wound up marrying both of them. Right. Mm-hmm. It It's really hard, from my perspective, to think that sex wasn't the big motivator behind Joseph Smith's mm-hmm. claims at this point. Right. The fact that he kept trying to avoid detection is very important. And... And it, and it comes out in all, you know, the, uh, we kept, uh, he uh, uh, hid it from, from his wife. And he, uh, you know, in deal, uh, he would approach all these women, according to their uh, diaries, where uh, he, he would give them a storyline that God had commanded him to do this. And it was almost against his will that he was doing this, but he mu- uh, they, uh, they must marry him, and uh, uh, they're going to be in trouble with God one way or the other if they don't, and uh, and God will bless you if you do, He'll give you this experience that uh, you will not be able to deny and the like, and yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think that basically he, uh, I, I, uh, I would see him as a predator, but I never use such language um, uh, around Mormons themselves. I, I would. Uh, um, I try, uh, I'm trying to approach them with as much respect as I would want if they were trying to convert me. What has been your results for when you've presented this kind of information to Mormons? I mean, has it led to deconversions or anything like that? I have not seen it. I should not be surprised that I don't, because uh, I've attended uh, uh, the last. Uh, I went to a conference of ex Mormons last fall. Uh, the, the book was coming out soon, and I wanted them to know that this was coming out as a resource mm. to be loaned uh, or given to Mormons. And I, I was hearing how long it took Mormons to come around from their their first. Um, first being confronted with the truth about their beliefs until uh, it, uh, it normally took at least two years. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm not surprised. I haven't uh, been present to see um, as far as I'm, I'm kind of like in the Bible where it says Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gives the growth. I've never been around to see the harvest. Um, but mm. nevertheless, I still see what I do as being important, nevertheless. Well, that's interested. One preview of things coming up next month, we're going to have one of those ex-Mormons on. Lisa Brockman is going to join me on May 2nd about her book, mm-hmm. Out of Zion, about how she escaped Mormonism. Yes. So I got to meet her while I was at that convention. Yes. Um, so, mm-hmm. so the next thing you had brought up, especially also, was Joseph's views on translation, Right. Right. Uh, well, and I, I, I think I've kind of uh, we we've went over. Uh, we can uh, we have no text of the Book of Ab- of Mormon. Um, all we have uh, we have his claims that he translated it from golden plates, but we, ha- we don't have the golden plates. We can't verify his uh, 
his uh, translation there, although we can examine the story itself and whether we find it believable, mm -hmm. which uh, the only part I find believable is the possibility that Joseph, that Jesus might have, might have come to America, but not the Book of Mormon's version of how, uh, of how it all went over. Uh, but then, and then basically where we do have, uh, other than the Book of Abraham that we talked about earlier, we have the, uh, the, his claims to have retranslated the Bible, to have restored those plain and precious parts that were taken out and uh, the, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, reach, uh, to correct translation wherever it was wrong. But again, it's, it's Joseph's word versus the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I understand even with the Book of Mormon that there have, if you picked up an original Book of Mormon from 1830, it's very different yeah. in many ways from what we have today. We, um, well, very, you know, there are 3,900 changes that have been noted in the book, and I have uh, a photo reproduction of one of those uh, uh, original Book of Mormon. Um, the name of the uh, the name of the church on the very well. Sorry, that's the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, the Book of Mormon. Most of the uh, most of the differences tend to be grammar and spelling changes, um, but there are some substantive changes. Uh, nevertheless, I didn't spend much time uh, looking at that uh, because really. Uh, um, the issue for me is not whether there were changes, but whether this story really took place. Were there, uh, did uh, uh, Hebrews come to America and become uh, the, uh, the ancestors of either today's uh, uh, Native Americans, or even you know, what I found recently since I wrote the book is that there is a theory out there that the two groups, the Lamanites and the Nephites, which uh, the descendants of the people that left uh, uh, left Israel to come to America, uh, that these groups uh, were supposedly only small groups that melted into the population to where, since we have done uh, DNA tests and have found no traces of, of, of Middle Eastern uh, DNA in today's Native Americans, they simply uh, claim that these groups were relatively small groups that melted into the population. Well, that's convenient, um, but it really it does, is not at all what I was led to believe when I read the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you and me both met one. Let's talk about mm. some of that stuff here with another interest in talking about Joseph Smith, and that'd be Joseph Smith and race. That there are yes. some very mm -hmm. interesting statements about race in the Book of Mormon. Mm. Um, true. Um, you have uh, in the Book of Mormon and in the Book of Abraham, you have the concept that dark skin or African ancestry, both, uh, were considered a curse, um, a curse that prevented uh, people of African descent from holding the priesthood, which it's not like the Catholic or Orthodox priesthood in Mormonism. Uh, in Mormonism, priesthood is held by every uh, every male in good standing. Uh, so that was a huge problem to Mormons until 1978 when they had a revelation um, throwing the, uh, 
the priesthood open to all worthy males, regardless of their race. Um, but interestingly, uh, the Book of Mormon and even the Book of Abraham has theology from the early half of Joseph's um, uh, prophetic career. Uh, what I was surprised as I did, uh, as I read um, uh, Richard Bushman's uh, book, Rough Stone Rolling, he dug up all the evidence showing that um, Joseph had gone to uh, a shift from his early years where he was defending slavery uh, to slave owners in Missouri. Uh, once he got to Illinois, he started um, uh, preaching uh, in favor of the abolitionist position. And uh, that one was kind of, you know, his views ended up sounding a lot like Abraham Lincoln's. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking if those, it might be true because some of those views were stated in uh, in a pamphlet, you know, uh, uh, promoting his uh, run for president. But then some of those same views were also expressed in private with one of his top leaders that were asking, well, what should we do with black people? And and his, uh, his views there were very egalitarian and equalitarian and very much like um, like Lincoln's. So, yeah, which is the real Joseph Smith? I don't know. But to me, the huge problem is that uh, to have a God in Mormonism that at first says that, uh, that black skin or African ancestry is, is a curse and then turns around and, and throws that out the window. Um, a God that changes his mind that drastically, I have a problem with. And I do talk in the book about the issue, can God change his mind? What do we do about changes in the Bible? Well, those changes are uh, like uh, simply allowing us to eat unkosher food and the like. Those those are much different than the changes in uh, the more, let's say, the, the Mormon uh, approach to race. Yeah, I, I find, found it interesting about point when I was going to read a book course. One could suspect that if you were a Christian, you'd go through and you'd find everything negative you could about Joseph Smith. But the mm. chapter on race was, I found, to be very even-handed because he gave some states like, well, here are some good positive statements from Joseph Smith right. on race. Right. And, you know, they, uh, Joseph's Day and Jesus' Day, um, boy, you know, we, uh, today's views on race are so different that you, you just have to look at them in context. And I do uh, point out, uh, I talk about how Jesus uh, Jesus knew that if he did not put the Jews first in his outreach, people would think that Jesus is just like uh, just for Gentiles. Of course, we still have that problem. Uh, but then, um, you know, where did Joe, the followers of Jesus get the idea to go to all nations? Again, historical Jesus. This is bedrock. Jesus really did command people to take his message to the whole world. And we have that statement in the Book of Mormon about the Lamanites of A.B. have skin to dark. And right. the, the original text, I understand, did say that their skin become white. But now they've got someone saying, like, Pure and wholesome instead. Um, the, there, there is uh, there is that's one of the few substantive changes which you know I did mention in the book there uh, that from a, a, a white and delightsome people gets changed to a pure and delightsome people. Apparently, Joseph himself tried to change his Book of Mormon uh, accord, uh, 
to make put that change in, but then it got changed back because the original version said white and delightsome. But now today's um, editions of the Book of Mormon read pure. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's quite likely Joseph Smith was maybe going with whatever was politically expedient at the time for his work, or what? Uh, you can't help but but suspect that. Um, but I think he had both strains uh, in uh, inside him: the equalitarian and the the what we would call the racist. Um, uh, and yeah, I that, that's why I wrote the chapter the way I did. I came out. Uh, I try, uh, like you said, I, I, I try to, to be as even-handed as possible with him on that because that's the least of my problems with him other than, you know, uh, uh, the, the whole issue of whether God could have been, uh, been a racist, essentially, and then and changed his mind. <laughs> yeah, let's talk briefly also about the whole word of wisdom thing, because as we sit here, Usually for each episode, I've got a can or a bottle of green tea right here next to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, as soon as mm -hmm. I hear him saying that, you know, you have to abstain from tea at all, i okay, that's enough to convince me otherwise, because I love my tea. So what's the deal mm -hmm. with a word of wisdom? I mean, it, there's even some debate yeah. about what it really is, isn't there? Right. Um, yeah. It was not issued until I believe it was 1832. I'm pulling uh, pulling these dates out of my brain, um, but uh, a, there was some debate about some of the details as to excuse me what all is included by hot drinks, um, coffee, uh, tea, and hot drinks. Um, well, uh, coffee and tea are not actually mentioned in the original, but hot drinks. Uh, was defined by Joseph's brother as uh, being uh, coffee and tea. Uh, alcohol, uh, it's interesting because uh, hard liquor is made, it's real clear, was, uh, was forbidden. Uh, the language almost made it sound as if uh, beer might have, uh, might have qualified as something they could drink, but uh, I've virtually never hear Mormons uh, interpret it that way. Uh, it's obvious, and I give the evidence in my book, uh, even the most friendly sources, even straight from Joseph himself, uh, demonstrate to me that Joseph did not take uh, take his own command very strictly. Uh, took it, it Really, the whole revelation reads more like friendly advice uh, from, from his God. Um, but then it was around uh, 1906 that the Mormon authorities decided to start making the Word of Wisdom mandatory uh, for those that wanted to be certified as worthy to enter a Mormon temple. So I was kind of, uh, for a long time, I was wondering, well, how did, how did uh, things, uh, uh, how did it go from, from lax to strict? And how did they end up taking wine out of their sacrament entirely and re replacing it with water? That was the date when when that happened in 1906. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, I'd like to mind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And I encourage you to go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, 
There is a link on the side help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on that link in there, and you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Don't worry, my page is still working right. You've gone in the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation, and it goes to... <laughs> and you, then you get in touch with me, or I, or Mike, or De his wife Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deep Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax-deductible. You can also purchase ebooks that I have written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed of Today's Christian. Hopefully by now, we'll be out um, Dawkins and the Dock, a look at Richard Dawkins' book, Outgrowing God. You can also buy ones out co-written, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers for Generations, Christians, um, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, and The Mission of Ours Project. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. Now, Dr. Hobson, do you have a charity or organization you'd like to see people support? Well, um, I, I financial support, um, I don't know. Uh, uh, basically, at the moment, I'm simply uh, my ministry is uh, you know I'm retired, so basically I'm I'm free to uh, to be able to uh, try to get this uh, try to get the book the historical Jesus and historical Joseph Smith out to as many people as possible. Uh, the book itself has a website, uh, historicaljoseph.org historicaljoseph.org. You can find out all, you uh, get summaries of all 14 chapters of the book and plenty of other information. I have a blog uh, that is on that site. That blog also, a lot of the same items are also on my other website, biblicalethic.org. Biblical Ethic was created for my first book, What's on God's Sin List for Today, but I ended up packaging all my um uh, links to my academic work together in one place, including for a year I was blogging for patheos.com uh, under uh, under the name Biblical Words and World. All those blogs are still there, all 110 of them, uh, where a lot of those are word studies on uh, various biblical words, like the like the word bandit. Uh, for you know the bandits that were crucified with Jesus, you know terrorist makes a very as uh, uh, the most uh, w best way to for us to translate today and the like. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, on biblical ethic, the blog is called Hobson's Biblical Choice, and a lot of my blog, um, vast majority of it over the past two years has been about about uh, Christianity and Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Let's get back then, of course, to talking about the book. Now, it's something that you said you don't really use as an argument, and it's not one I use normally, but I do want to bring it up, is the prophecies that Joseph Smith made. Mm -hmm. And a mm -hmm. lot of these can be pretty problematic, but many LDS apologists do have a way of working around them. So why, mm -hmm. why do you not use these prophecies, and can you give us some examples of them? Right. Well, I yeah, use for example. Um, there's quite a bit of debate about the the meanings of the prophecies given by Jesus in the um, 
the uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're placed there in such a way that uh, some people get what I believe is a mistaken impression that uh, that Jesus thought the world was going to end right there within a generation after uh, after the crucifixion. We all know that that did not happen. Uh, but so we get uh, you get your skeptics that want to claim that, and then we we read the prophecies differently. Mormons do the same thing. Uh, the Mormons will look at a prophecy like, for instance, the the prophecy that the temple uh, would would be built in Kansas City on a specific site, which never took place. Well, they have their own explanations of why that was not a false prophecy. Mm -hmm. uh, you had, uh, I've never heard the, ex uh, what do they do about the grease spot prophecy, uh, where Joseph, um, uh, in, in, his, um, in his diary, is recorded, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, unless the United States redresses the wrongs committed upon the saints in the state of Missouri and punish the crimes committed by our officers, that in a few years the government will be utterly overthrown and wasted, and there will not be so much as a potsherd left for their wickedness in permitting the men, uh, uh, the murder of men, women, and children. Uh, oh, there's two different versions of it, but there's the other version that says, I prophesy. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, that if God will not hear our petition and grant us protection from local mobs, they shall be broken up as a government, and God shall D-A-M-N them, and there will be nothing left of them, not even a grease spot. Mm. What do they do with those? Uh, well, you know, uh, again, if I were a Mormon, I kind of know what I would say. And so, therefore, I, I decided not to pursue um, false prophecy. I Instead, I pursued... Oh, in Deuteronomy, even if a uh, even if a uh, prophet's prophecies come true, if he teaches you to follow other gods, you shall not listen to that that prophet. Uh, the, uh, and that's what I put under the microscope in my book: uh, the fact that this is a very different God that uh, that Joseph is trying to convince us to believe in. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. You and I could be in good agreement on prophecy when it comes to the New mm -hmm. Testament. I'm actually doing a series on my blogs at the time of recording where I'm going through the Olivet Discourse and doing so from a perspective of an Orthodox preterist. So, mm -hmm. personally, okay. from that end, I'd really enjoy discussing prophecy with mm -hmm. Mormons. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let's talk some also about another debate issue. How did Joseph Smith die? Because there was a lot of Mormons who say Joseph Smith went like a lamb to the slaughter. He died a martyr's death. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it's funny that that happens to be the latest um, blog post that I have put up um, the, uh, on both of my websites. Uh, basically, um, 
first you have the problem of, you know, the, the Sunday school version of it, you know, Jesus, uh, Joseph dies like a lamb to the slaughter. They never mention the gunfight. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk to Mormons, and as on- online, I'm finding most of them, yes, they've heard about the gunfight somewhere along the line. Uh, now, Joseph defended himself with a gun. I have no problem with him defending himself because, yeah, what, uh, what uh, his lynching should have never taken place. I'm, I'm glad he fought back. Mm-hmm. Uh, too bad he couldn't fight them back successfully. Um, but this is not martyrdom. Jesus did not die this way. Jesus told Peter to put his sword back, uh, back where it belongs. So. Um, but now, whether you can, uh, the real issue as to what makes someone a martyr is that, you know, Joseph died either covering up his sin or covering up a principle of faith. Because, you know, uh, why was he put in jail? He was put in jail because he directed uh, the opposition printing press in town to be destroyed because they were publishing uh, these were these were mormons who had a problem with joseph they felt joseph had gone off the deep end and not only was he doing polygamy he was teaching that there are many other gods out there he was running a real estate uh racket in their opinion don't know the truth on that one and that he was uh that he was uh, plotting to become king of the united states uh there is actually uh, there's even uh, one of the Mormons' uh, mo- uh, favorite historians uh, today, Richard Bushman, even he indicates, yes, that uh, that Council of 50 that was uh, making plans like that really did exist. But, okay, so he's de- uh, he destroys the printing press, I believe, mainly because uh, it's revealing the truth about his practice of polygamy. Uh, so he's either covering up sin or covering up a principle of faith. So uh, to be a martyr, he had to be to die as a direct result of what his faith required him to believe or do. So uh, it's too bad that Joseph doesn't say plural marriage is from God. I will die defending it. If he had done that and he had died defending it, yes, he could be considered a, um, a martyr. He doesn't die defending the Book of Mormon or his teachings. He doesn't die for any reason comparable to early Christians who refused to worship Caesar. So in my book, his death uh, was uh, was a murder. It was a terrible thing, Um, but uh, uh, it cannot be described as martyrdom. So basically, my complaint is simply that the uh, the Mormon church has tended to sanitize the story uh, the, and, and making him out to be a martyr. Um, again, I, I wish what happened had never had happened, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not how we define mor- martyrdom. Yeah. Uh, since I think about that, looking on history, I think if that crowd hadn't had done that, could it mm-hmm. have been possible that Mormonism wouldn't be around today? You know that is, uh, yeah. I, I, I've, as I participated in discussion about my blog, I was, I was noticing the whole question. You know, if, if, uh, if he had, if, if Joseph had simply said, uh, either confessed and defended polygamy, or confessed and repented of it, uh, things might have been different. 
uh, he was attempting to escape, uh, and his uh, his wife uh, persuade him that hey, you're you're looking like a chicken. You're looking like uh, uh, you know running away is is the wrong thing to do. I think that Joseph had figured out uh, that the. Uh, Everything was going to come crashing in, and that actually to to stay in jail, even if a mob came and killed him, would have been better uh, than if he had had to live through uh, the aftermath of things as as his followers in mass finally uh, discovered the truth of what was going on. Um, so yeah, who knows what uh, what actually might have happened differently. Okay, now, something that's usually said about Mormons is, okay, okay, you know, Mormons, you ever get a lot of doctrine, well, but, you know, they're such nice people, and we're told mm -hmm. we're no people by their fruits, so why can't we consider Mormons to be Christians? Mm. Well, um, well, two reasons. Number one, and we talked about this earlier, the theology is not <laughs> Christian, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but... Uh, the whole question, well, what is God doing? Uh, how do we explain all the good fruits of Mormonism? And the first, uh, my first approach is to, uh, be, uh, you know, I believe that, uh, that the, the good fruits of Mormonism come from beliefs and moral teachings that they got from us and not from, from Joseph's unique teachings. You know, the same is true of Islam, and I guess uh, yeah, Islam and Mormonism, both cases you have a a prophet where when Jesus says you shall know them by their fruits, Jesus was talking about knowing the prophet by their fruits, not knowing the followers, because the followers can be uh, can be uh, good people. Mm -hmm. That's true for Muslims. That's true for Mormons. Uh, very good people, uh, the vast majority of them, but. You look at the teachings and the lifestyles of the prophets, the leaders, and, uh, you know, you, you compare with, uh, you know, they say a lot of bad things have been done in the name of Christianity. People are quick to point out the aids and the inquisitions and the like. And uh, the, way I, uh, the way I have observed is that Christianity, uh, the bad fruits come when they're not following their leader, meaning Jesus. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like in Islam, for example, the uh, the terrorism and the like comes when they are uh, when they are following their prophet, and the uh, the the peaceful Islam comes from when Islam is not following their prophet. Um, so, in, now in Mormonism's case. Uh, you simply have uh, uh, the good in Mormonism. I believe that God, uh, you know, the Mormonism has been rebranding itself lately to make it sound more like evangelical Christianity. Um, they've, they're putting the emphasis on the name Jesus. They're, uh, they keep talking about the atonement. They make it sound like they're saved only through the atonement. They make it sound like it's, uh, like it's our version but really it's salvation by earning it through good works. Um, but they've been trying to put a different face on that. And so I think uh, I see a lot of, 
of Mormons who are happy with their faith, but it's not a very Mormon faith at all. It's really a faith, uh, they're placing their faith in something that resembles a lot more what we believe and not what Mormonism itself teaches. So, and God evidently can use that. You know, I, I use the example of uh, Paul in Philippians, uh, his opponents uh, were Judaizers. They were trying to uh, say you had to become a Jew first before you become become a Christian, and they were trying to provoke um, uh, Paul into being jealous of what they were doing. And Paul said, "Yeah, what am I supposed to think? Uh, hey, I." Re uh, uh, I Christ, uh, all, the most important thing is that Christ is proclaimed. In, in that, I rejoice. So um, God can evidently use some not very Christian doctrine to lead people to Christ. That was true with the Judaizers. That was true uh, probably for Gnosticism. And we know it was true. You know, the, it was the Nestorians had a weird view of Jesus who took Jesus all the way to China. Um, and you had the Arians who believed that Jesus uh, was not God, but God used them to uh, to reach the Goths, uh, the Gothic people for Christ. So God can do that. Uh, he's God. I ain't. I, I might not have done what he did, but uh, but God is a sovereign God. And God's got many ways. But all this is true, but it does not mean uh, there's does not give us any reason not to correct or avoid the false teachings of mormonism or groups of that nature so why is it then that when it comes down to it you choose to trust jesus instead of joseph smith well first uh you know i come to trust jesus because uh he lived an amazing life that uh, he uh, he claimed to be God. He showed us that he was. Uh, he, to me, he proved it by by rising from the dead, and he offers us a way of salvation that uh, that Mormonism cannot offer. Because uh, uh, as as you re uh, and I go back to. Uh, Paul's version of the gospel is that we are saved by God's undeserved by grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And what Jesus did, says Paul, is enough to make us holy and pure and faultless in God's presence. Mormonism can't offer that. It cannot offer that. Uh, it offers us a salvation that none of us can be worthy. None of us can do all that we can possibly do. Uh, but uh, that's uh, that po uh, point is what opens many Mormons to uh, to investigating uh, whether their faith is really true after all, because they find they can't they can't be saved this way. Maybe there's something wrong. Uh, but uh, what, uh, Mark Cares is a evangelist to Mormons who uses a very gospel-centered approach, and he says you can't get them to examine the the evidence against Joseph until they first despair of their own ability to save themselves through uh, the Mormon gospel. So only that can open their eyes. Uh, says Mark cares, and you know I think yeah there there could be a lot of truth to that. The uh, but then ultimately, 
I find that you know, Joseph claims to be the one uh, prophet that can point us to uh, to Jesus. And I find, based on what we've said over the past hour and a half or so, that I cannot trust Joseph. Uh, the Book of Abraham, the way that he um, practiced uh, uh, polygamy, not the fact that he poly uh, that he practiced it, but how he did so in blatant disregard to the very commands that he claimed were from God. To me, the, uh, and the, uh, the fact that he's being a false God that is not the God of the Bible uh, leads me to not trust Joseph, but to, uh, but to trust in the Jesus I've trusted in all, in all along since 1973. You know, I, I find it interesting he's talking about the, the forgiveness, the gospel in Mormonism, because I keep meaning to, I haven't got around to reading Spencer Kimber's book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, but yes. it's my understanding based on that, that it should be called a miracle of forgiveness, because it would be absolutely a miracle if anyone could get forgiven. Right, yeah, and in fact, uh, that book uh, gets... Uh, is be is gets distributed by Christians who are read, reading out yes. to Mormons like in raids and things like that, and it's kind of like it's bizarre. Some Mormons have started to disavow uh, uh, the book by saying, "Well, he wasn't a prophet yet when he wrote it," and and the like. Again, what good are your prophets if you can't take their word? But it also shows there uh, some of them feel threatened by the, yeah, uh, the message that makes it sound like it's impossible to be saved. Mm -hmm. So let's talk some briefly over the last 15 or so about doing evangelism door-to-door. -door. Let's suppose, mm -hmm. perfectly, people are sitting at home, there's a knock on the door, you open up, there's Mormons. What do you recommend mm -hmm. they do? Well... Um, it would, you know, it's going to sound self-serving, but it would be uh, helpful if they uh, if they quickly get a copy of my my book before they ever talk, actually sit down and talk mm -hmm. to Mormons. Um, I used to uh, back when I around 1980 when I was first uh, preparing for uh, for the possibility of reaching Mormons, I was told back then. The uh, Mormon missionaries were a hopeless cause, uh, but this fellow that I just mentioned, Mark Cares, has actually started a uh, one of the branches of his ministry is equipping people to go reach Mormon missionaries because he believes that they are ripe and wide open for the gospel because they are put in such a vulnerable situation with all that uh, they're isolated from their families for two years and put through such a difficult regimen that they res uh, they respond to any more uh, any Christian who cares about them and and knows what they're talking about now I would say don't invite Mormons into your home if you don't know what you're talking about because as, as I read today, someone said they, they're using the same words, but a different dictionary. <laughs> Where, uh, so they can easily def, uh, confuse you and mislead you into believing that, uh, that they believe what you do and they do not. So I would say first, um, uh, if you believe God may be calling you to reach out to Mormons, uh, well, if you don't believe that you are, then be as kind to them as possible as you decline their offer to, uh, to talk. 
because they remember all the doors slammed in their faces and getting called names and things like that. So be as kind as possible if you deny, if you uh, decline. But if you choose to accept the chance to talk to them, make sure you know what, they're, what you're talking about. And um, material in my book could be helpful to, uh, to either to know it, in, uh, to uh, share it in discussion, but even to be able to give the book away or loan it. Yeah. I remember when I lived in Charlotte before I got married, my roommate and I, we were both big into apologetics, and it was absolutely wonderful for us whenever we had women come by. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we'd often do is we'd go before they came by, and we'd stop at Little Caesars. We'd pick mm -hmm. up a $5 pizza. We'd mm -hmm. get things like Gatorade, I mean, they could mm -hmm. have, and we'd bring mm -hmm. it over when they came, and we would all sit down, have a meal together, talk about the issues, and I, I think that was so fundamental for them, because it was always saying, hey, these guys probably don't get a good meal too often, but give them something special. Mm -hmm. And one time, I remember they called us and said, hey, we can't come to see you because our car is broken down, and I said, okay, where are you? And they told me, I said, okay, I'm going to come get you instead. And the way I see it, when I'm driving there with them, I've got open ground to just give them the whole gospel the whole time. Uh -huh. and, and then the final example thing about it is we had, for a while we had what we called the revolving door of Mormon missionaries coming because they kept getting questions they couldn't answer. Uh -huh. And one time we had one coming in who was being here for the first time and another one who was doubting. We think he was doubting, pretty sure. And we had already arranged that we were going to walk to this, uh, this Jewish dairy, not too far from where we live at the time. So here you got two evangelicals and two Mormons going into a Jewish dairy. Well, the new guy, when he showed up, he saw our video systems. Old school mm -hmm. systems, too. And he was just thrilled. And the whole time we were at the mirror, that's all he talked about. And mm. when we were walking back, my roommate noticed he was still one time out, and he he kind of veered this guy away so I could talk to the other one as we were walking back. So we're walking together, but you can hear, I'm answering all this guy's questions over and over. We're pretty sure they got a really good talking to when they got back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but boy, you're doing—you were doing exactly the types of things that Mark Cares would re recommend that you mm -hmm. do. Now, one of the things I would say is that people who aren't, aren't used to talking to Mormons had better be prepared uh, not to get put on the defensive, because yeah. the Mormons, uh, yeah, they—I'm uh, sure they hit you with a "Where do you get your authority?" question. Yeah. You know, we have apostles and prophets. Where are yours? And. Uh, so you need to know what you're going to say that uh, their their uh, Melchizedek priesthood. There is only one Melchizedek priest, and it is Jesus. Uh, yours was an invention, and or, or like for instance, uh, with the the uh, fellow that I've been uh, emailing back and forth, uh, he has really been putting me through the ringer on the trying to prove that God is not a man with a body of flesh and bone. He gives you all your biblical proofs for why God has hands and eyes and all this, and, and so you really have to. 
uh, give them the short version of why, uh, why this is not true. And in fact, I am going to put, uh, that's going to be my next blog sometime next week is, does God have a bot? Uh, and all the <laughs> biblical evidence to prove it wrong. <laughs> I, I, I love that title. So I'm curious, what would you say to be a 40 question? Uh, a authority question? Yes. No, right. and the, 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 where do you get your authority? Yes. Um, the, uh, well, I, I would tell, uh, I would throw it back on them. Well, you claim to have this authority from your Melchizedek priesthood, but that whole priesthood was an invention of Joseph Smith. It is a misinterpretation of the book, the verse uh, Hebrews 7:24, which says that that Jesus has a an untransferable priesthood. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a you know there uh, they have a priesthood with with mil, uh, millions of male priests, um, but we uh, there uh, that pass it on from one person to the next. Um, Jesus's priesthood of Melchizedek was uh, a one-shot, untransferable. So, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, they, uh, that will put most Mormon missionaries on, on the defensive right at the beginning there. In which, which case, you can tra change the subject to talk about um, other issues. You know, when you talk about Mormon missionaries being ripe for picking, also, I couldn't help but think of a story, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, of Michael Wilder. The Wilders, the unveiled in Grace book, that he came to know Jesus on his missionary journey. Hmm. Well, um, I didn't know the specific name, but there, uh, there are increasing numbers of stories like that. Uh, yeah, from uh, uh, Mark Kears's ministry tells about uh, a, a young woman who. Uh, who went uh, went on her mission to find uh, for the purpose actually of trying to find Jesus while she's trying to uh, promote the Mormon gospel, and she ended up finding our Jesus instead. Mm -hmm. uh, there are more and more stories like that, and that's a joy to my heart. Forty years after I was told that it never happens, it's happening all the time. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, when people are trying to get help, sadly, I think it's the case that there are too many pastors even who are unequipped. To tell mm -hmm. their church how they can get help in reaching Mormons. I mean, this is something that the church really needs to be doing a whole lot better job on, isn't it? Right. If you go to Witnessing, uh, the play, uh, the fellow Mark Karras that I mentioned, his website is tilm truthandloveministry.org. T-I-L-T-I-L-M.org. And they uh, there'd be specifically the place I would go looking for resources on how to, uh, on how to prepare yourself for uh, to share the gospel. I promote my book simply because it contains a lot of what Mark Cares' uh, uh, ministry does not specialize in. Although Mark uh, was amazing, he instead of using the ancient, the old, you know. Uh, 1800s sources from early Mormonism, he backed up everything of what Mormonism teaches based on uh, the current resources, current uh, statements from their prophets, current um, Sunday school materials used by the Mormons. Um, and yeah, so man, that's, that's where I'd go if I wanted to dig further on that. Where do you think the Mormon church is heading right now? Because more and more information is coming out that's really not friendly to more church. They even had, not to know them go, they released a Joseph Smith Seer Stones 
for instance. Mm. And the internet is very doing a number on the Mormon Church. What do you think the future of the Mormon Church holds? Well, um, it's interesting. At the conference last fall, we were talking about that, and and it's like um, uh, the uh, Mormonism here in uh, the uh, uh, in North America and Europe and the like. Uh, is on the verge of becoming more liberal. Uh, we're wondering whether they're going to cave on the uh, issue of homosexuality. Um, but uh, Mormonism in the so-called third world is very conservative and growing. It's it's kind of sort of shrinking or barely keeping, uh, keeping uh, abreast of itself uh, in the, uh, the Western world. Um, but so... And it's funny that the, uh, like you say, uh, all the facts now available on the internet and the like. I, 40 years ago, I would have said, oh, wow, uh, Mormonism is going to cave in real quickly here. But no, I'm finding that actually it, it's it's driving them to a, uh, we used to call neo-Orthodox approach, uh, Mormonism, to where... Uh, uh, Mormonism can can hold itself. Uh, a lot of Mormons are today uh, believe, okay, yeah, um, uh, prophets are just people, and so what if they make errors here and there? And they don't. Uh, a lot of them don't don't care whether uh, whether all, all these embarrassing facts about uh, Mormonism are true or not. They still have this burning in the bosom that can uh, convinces them that the true church is true and it's full of good uh, good fruits and good works. And so, uh, all that stuff doesn't matter to them. Uh, but truth matters, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And I, th I tried to make that clear in my first chapter that uh, uh, truth matters. Uh, whether that uh, translates in and Mormonism also seems to be kind of creeping the fact that it's rebranding itself, trying to make it more self more like us. Um, I'm wondering whether uh, God may do something to Mormonism like he's done to, like, say, the Worldwide Church of That's God, which came, uh, came from becoming a cult, from being a cult to uh, being um, essentially Orthodox Christian. The reorganized church um, is kind of a halfway house. They're kind of like us. They believe in the Trinity. They're starting to have doubts about Joseph. And uh, they've become a halfway house for a lot of people that are starting to leave the Salt Lake City brand of Mormonism. Uh, they have renamed themselves. They now call themselves the Community of Christ. And, you know, God seems to be uh, be making them into us. And, uh, you know, that that may be part of God's master plan for, for winning Mormonism to Christ as we understand it. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't really have enough time to get into anything else, so I'd like to thank oh. you for coming on here via the book is The Historical Jesus and the Historical Joseph Smith. Right now, mm -hmm. as a time of recording on Amazon, paperback version is $9.99. The Kindle version is $3.99. Now, do you uh, have uh, any final words and thoughts you'd like to leave for a Deeper Waters audience? Um, uh, just simply uh, to follow up on, on what you're saying there, that they, uh, to find out more if this is the resource for you, you can go to historicaljoseph.org, 
and you'll find plenty uh, uh, plenty more about the book uh, and and how it can be used. The most uh, actually the the least expensive version uh, can be ordering directly from uh, from the um, company. You can find out uh, that, uh, all the places where it's uh, available uh, on the website. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I uh, this has been my heart's uh, desire for 42 years uh, to share the gospel with with Mormons. He God never sent me out there uh, to be a pastor, uh, but uh, this seems to be what He had in mind instead. So I'm uh, thrilled that you had uh, invited me to be your guest this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Oh. God willing, we'll see what God has in store. I've said that uh, the fact that God may have predestined everything doesn't keep this from being treasure hunt where I'm looking to see uh, what God's got around the corner next. Next week, we're going to have Matthew Schneider on, an autistic Catholic priest discussing for Autism Awareness Month. And now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off. <laughs>